morning, First Baptist. You know, I think it's a special crown for those of you who show up to the first service on Spring Forward Sunday. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Hope we're all well caffeinated for those of us who need it. Thanks for coming. So we referred to this guy as Nicky the Knife. He was our dentist. He was the only dentist in the town of Dunbar at the time. So this is where everybody went. Now, as a child that had fairly bad teeth, going to the dentist that we referred to as Nicky the Knife, it could be a traumatic experience. Uh, I had a lot of cavities and things, so my mom, in her wisdom, anytime I would have to go to the dentist, she would take me to the House of Toys there in Dunbar, West Virginia. So I, it, to appease me, right? So I could get some toys and, and, and help settle my nerves a bit after the trauma I just endured at the dentist, Nikki the Knife. So one time she went, she got me, we got some Matchbox cars. And I remember I got those Matchbox cars, I don't know, there's maybe five or six of them, and, and I was playing with those near my house, and some of the neighborhood kids came over, and they saw that I had these brand new Matchbox cars. And so uh, they're looking at those, and, and they had theirs. And theirs were not quite as new and nice as the ones that I had. Now these kids were a whole lot more street smart than I was. So they start saying, hey, what do, you, what do you think about us making a trade? Well, you know, I'm looking at theirs, and, and they're all kind of hand-painted, and they've been around for a while, but they keep talking. And before I knew it, I had traded all my brand-new ones for these old, old junkers that they had. So I take them home, and, and my mom comes up, and she sees what I've got there. And she says, well, well, what's that? And she said, well, these are, these are matchbox cars. She said, well, what happened to the ones I just bought you? And I said, well, I traded them for these. And she said, well, why did you do that? I said, well, because these are better. And she said, what makes you think these are better? I said, well, because the other kids told me so. <laughs> to this day, she still laughs. I mean, this was, this was almost 40 years ago. She still laughs that I let those kids talk me into getting those newer, better matchbox cars of theirs. Now, that was childhood gullibility and, and, and immaturity. And I'm guessing if we were to survey the audience, at some point in your life, you've probably had a gullible moment. Something you look back and say, man, that was kind of a dumb thing to do. But you know what, if you, if you meet a 44, 45-year-old man and he's still buying elevator tickets and he's uh, still going on snipe hunts. Anybody ever been on a, on a snipe hunt? Okay. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I, I specifically asked somebody yesterday, do they do this in Wyoming? And I was assured that they did, okay? Or if they've tried to sell you the local bridge, right? If you meet a 45, 46-year-old guy that's, that's still kind of there, you think, man, this poor guy. I, he's not ready to go out there and like face a world full of, of hostile people that don't always have his best interests in mind. We'd say there's something wrong there. 
you see, there's these different kinds of what we could call maturity. There's emotional maturity. There's physical maturity. And then there's another kind of maturity that I believe is more vital than all the others. And that is spiritual maturity. Because, see, there are sinister people and spirits out there, much worse than those young men that I encountered that talked me into trading my matchbox cards that want to do nothing more than lead away the children of God and leave you with a devastated life of pain and confusion to get you to a point where you can no longer discern good teaching and bad teaching, to get you to a place where you're completely ruled by your emotions and you can't even seem to find your way out of it. That's the kind of spirit maturity I want to talk about this morning. The question I want to pose to you is, how do I grow in spiritual maturity? How do I grow in spiritual maturity? And we're going to see a pretty harsh confrontation this morning to a group of folks that don't seem to be able to grow in maturity. We're going to be looking in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 6-3. We're going to see some pretty heavy confrontation there. So if you would please stand up with me for the reading of the word. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You may be seated. So again, we're continuing on through the book of Hebrews. The audience who is receiving this letter, we're not completely sure who the author was, is being challenged by their old way of doing things, their old way of life. They're coming out of Judaism, and the temptation is, to keep doing things the way they used to. And persecution could be coming to them. And they're going to have to know what they believe in order to persevere through some some very difficult times that are ahead. So the message through Hebrews is don't stop believing. Hang on tightly to what you've learned, to what you've been taught. Cling to it. And this morning we're looking at this issue, you just heard about this issue of maturity. Last week we talked about the need to surrender our will to God. That very deepest part of us, where we make our decisions, it's where our desires lie in our heart of hearts. Surrendering that to God so he could do something with it that we could have never imagined. This morning we're talking about this move to maturity. And we're going to go through this passage. At first you, you just heard it, we'll, we'll talk about it more. We'll see immaturity confronted. And then we'll talk about a move to maturity. The, the, the writer's adamant about this. And while we're there, we'll talk about four characteristics of spiritual maturity. What does it look like? 
What are we gunning for here? And then finally, how do I grow to maturity? Three questions to ask ourselves, which could be obstacles that we face on our road to maturity. So I want to start out now there with the beginning of what we read. And it's worth noting at this point, even though this tone of, of Hebrews in this section is pretty harsh, uh, it's coming from a place of love that the writer has for his recipients. Even though it sounds kind of cruel, it's because he cares about them. This is, uh, the book of Hebrews is like one long sermon that's being given to the reader. So first of all, let's take a look at this confrontation uh, of the immaturity of the readers. And we see it in verses 11 through 14. These, these recipients, the readers of this, are neglecting their spiritual growth. They're neglecting it. And it starts there in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Again, I hope I'm never called dull of hearing. I may be dull of hearing, um, but, but what's, this guy, what's this guy saying? <clears throat> well, first of all, about this, what, what does he mean about this? Well, he's referring back to what he just said, that Christ um, was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we talked about what that means. Christ was both a king and a priest, like Melchizedek. But, but the writer's trying, he's going down into deeper truths about Christ. And he's going down into these deeper truths, and he's wanting to teach them more because they need to know more, because the world they're about to be in is going to be very hostile. So he's wanting to take them to deeper places. He's got a lot to say about it. But there's a problem. It's hard to explain. It's not easy to understand. And the audience, as he says, <clears throat> is dull of hearing. Well, now, what does that mean? Because it actually is not so much a comment on, the, on how their ears are working. It's more of a comment on them being sort of slow, dim-witted, not picking up what's being put down. They're not getting it. As a matter of fact, that phrase dull of hearing was sometimes used of athletes uh, in other Greek literature around this same time who were, who were kind of getting slow. They weren't keeping up with their training, and they weren't able to compete. So that's what it means by this phrase dull of hearing. Uh, they need to get with the program. Their condition is dangerous for people who have been called to this sort of radical kind of obedience. And then the rebuke continues in verse 12, and it gets a little more scathing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That, that phrase, oracles of God, by the way, that just means the revelation of God, that which God has provided us to know and to learn. That's what oracles of God means. They should be teaching the very things that they're having to learn all over again. Uh, these basic principles, it's like the ABCs of the faith. You know, we're supposed to learn our alphabet, and then learn words, and then sentences, and paragraphs, and chapters, and, and things like that. That's the progress, but they're stuck. They're stuck with the ABCs. Do you know, when we aren't sharing the truth that we learn about God, that we're actually moving backwards in maturity? If we're keeping it to ourselves, then we're actually in danger of losing it. Um, we need to be passing on 
what we know are either growing or shrinking. Now, I don't think that the writer of this has in view that everybody who's hearing him should be necessarily standing on a stage and, and talking to groups of people, <clears throat> but they should be talking to somebody Amen. about what they're learning, about what they're getting. Christians who are progressing in the faith ought to be able to instruct others, even if it's the most simple, simplest of things. They ought to be able to instruct others. By the way, I'm so proud of a young lady here in our church who's taken on to herself. She is, she is so passionate about making sure that people at First Baptist know how to share their faith. She's organizing an evangelism conference for our church. Sierra Johnson. I think she's 18, 19 years old, and she came to me and she's like, Chad, I want, I want everybody at First Baptist to know how to share their faith. So we're at the end of next month, actually, we're going to have a time of training on a Saturday morning on how to share your faith, organized by Sierra Johnson. I'm so proud of her. Uh, we have this responsibility to pass on and disciple others with what we know. And everybody, everybody thinks the same thing. I don't know enough. Yes, you do. If you know something, then you know that something can be passed on to somebody else. Um, there's a quote by a guy named Arthur Pink I want to pass on to you. He said, how few listen to the ministry of the scriptures with an ear not only for their own soul's profit, but also with the object of being equipped to help others. Instead, how many attend the preaching of the word simply as a matter of custom or to satisfy their conscience? Two aims should be prayerfully sought by every Christian auditor or, or listener, his own edification and his usefulness to others. Those two things go hand in hand. Um, and I hope you have a conversation, uh, either on the, in, in the car going home or that afternoon, it, with the folks <clears throat> that are in your family, about the Sunday school lesson, or about maybe one of the worship songs, or maybe the sermon, whatever it may be, even if you thought there was a mistake made, talk about it. Those are profitable conversations that are good to have. <clears throat> and then we get to verse 13, and it really starts to sting here. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. So he's saying that you are like children, speaking of his audience. They haven't cut their spiritual teeth yet. They can't eat solid food. He wants to take them to deeper teaching. He wants to show them that the Old Testament that they're so very familiar with has these parallels with Christ in the New Testament. But they're having trouble getting it. It says they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. It means they're not able to apply the truth that they know. It could be that they have a fear of martyrdom. That they have a fear of growth because it could mean they have to go outside. It could mean they, be, they could be interacting with the culture in a way that could, that could open them up to danger. So they're staying in this neutral territory. At least they think it's neutral, but they're moving backwards. This, this Christianity thing that we're doing, we're either moving forwards or we're moving backwards. <clears throat> then in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
There's an important point, especially in that last part, for those who have their powers of discernment are, are, are constantly trained by looking for both the good and the evil. Uh, you know, it, it's not just that these Hebrews have some lack of information. They lack experience putting what they know into practice. They're not practicing what they know. I can't tell you how many times I sat in one of my engineering classes back in college and walked there, watched a professor work out this problem on the board, went out, and he made it look so easy until I got back to my room and I tried to do it. It wasn't so easy. It's one thing to hear someone describe how to ride a bicycle. That doesn't mean you know how to ride one. You've got to get on it. You've got to use it. You've got to use what you learn. If it's not something easily applicable, you need to... You need to pass that knowledge on to somebody else. That's how we get skilled in this. And it's so important as we grow in maturity to be able to discern the good from the bad. We are bombarded, I mean bombarded, in our current information age on a daily basis with a lot of bad stuff, to say the least. I love what Warren Wearsby says when he's talking about this kind of maturity. He says, as we grow in the Word, we learn to use it in daily life. As we apply the Word, we exercise our spiritual senses and develop spiritual discernment. It is a characteristic of little children that they lack discernment. A baby will put anything into its mouth. An immature believer will listen to any preacher on the radio or television and not be able to identify whether or not he is true to the Scriptures just recently saw where a, a very popular televangelist in New York City is being investigated by the Attorney General for saying he's got the cure to coronavirus. Um, <laughs> yeah. If I say, you would all know his name if I were to say it. But you've got to be discerning. I, and there's so much out there. There's a lot of good self-help coming out of pastors' mouths that have very little to do with the Scriptures. So it's about putting things into practice, learning and discerning. And, and if we neglect Christian teaching, or if we don't put it into practice, we're lapsing into immaturity. And there's something else to be noted here. And that is this rebuke itself. You know, sometimes loving confrontation is an important thing for us to do. In the right setting, in the right way, not just telling someone, I don't like you because you're a jerk, but being able to talk about something specific, something that was done or said that they need confronted on. You know, as we live a life of transparency in front of each other, we should from time to time expect someone to challenge some behavior we have. We should be grateful to get it, that they have to love us enough to say something. So the immaturity of the congregation now has been confronted by the writer of Hebrews. And then secondly, let's, let's look at this um, move to maturity. He's not just screaming at him for being immature. He's going, to, he's going to encourage them to make a move to maturity. And there we see it um, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Let me just stop there for a moment. Because notice what the author is doing. He just said, you need milk. But he's not exactly meeting them where they are. He's pushing them. And he pushes them further. He says, not laying again this foundation. Um, this, 
when you're building a house, how many foundations do you need to lay? Well, hopefully just one. You lay that foundation, it's set, it's ready to build on. And he's saying you're not, you're not building on this foundation. You're still like trying to put the foundation together. We should have some things settled here. Um, they should have this attitude of ready to move forward. And he says you need to leave these doctrines behind. You've got these doctrines. The most elementary of doctrines. So let's move forward. You got that. Keep going. Don't stop there. Again, it's like moving past the alphabet. And then he unpacks these foundational tenets as we go through it. And you see it there in verses 1 and 2. There's actually uh, six items that the writer believed the reader did not need to learn again. Okay? Um, the first one, we see it there, uh, this repentance from dead works. Now, this is something we do when we become Christians. One of the first steps of becoming a Christian is to admit that you're a sinner. And you need salvation. So in the process of that, you're repenting of these dead works that you used to do. Things that are of absolutely no value. Things we're all guilty of. Things we did before we became Christians. Those are dead works. That's that first step of Christian commitment. And then secondly, he talks about this faith toward God. Okay, you moved away from that. Now you're moving towards, you've got this new faith in Christ. That you're trusting to save you. That's this faith in God. Okay, he's like, okay, you got that. Then he moves on to the next one. An instruction about washings. Well, now what, now what are we getting into here? Some, some versions may say baptisms. Now, remember, these people are coming from a Jewish background. They're accustomed to having to live by Jewish law. And part of Jewish law was always having to do a, some kind of a ceremonial washing to be clean. For example, in Leviticus 17, it says when any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening, then he will become clean. See, that was under this old agreement that the Jews had with Yahweh, with God. But now they're under a new covenant. They've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So they're clean. And he's like, okay, you got that. Let's move on. You're clean. That's this instruction about washings. And then it moves on. Um, this fourth one, the laying on of hands. Well, in Jewish custom, if you read about the sacrifices, they would lay hands uh, on an animal and put their sins on the animal uh, symbolically, and the animal would then take the sin. Well, that's not the way it's working now. Christ has had all the sins placed on him. So they don't need to be laying their hands on some animal to, blame, to, to place blame there. It's not the way it's working now. And then on to the last two, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There's very little in the Old Testament that you see regarding the, these end times teaching. Uh, they weren't quite sure what happened when you died. They, they thought you went to a place called Sheol, and that was where you just kind of kick around in the dirt. Um, they didn't realize there was going to be a full bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. They also didn't know that the, there would be this eternal judgment. But he's saying, okay, you got that now. Okay? Let's put this matter to bed. So all the stuff the writer was saying, we don't need to talk about this anymore. You should have this. Let's move on. Then he closes in verse 3 saying, 
And this we will do if God permits, if God permits. So again, we see the tension come right before our eyes. That he's telling them what to do, he's telling them what not to do, and at the end of it, if God permits. We're always, always giving God the glory for any progress we make in the Christian faith. At the same time, we are doing everything we can to progress in the Christian faith. Does that make sense? 100% God. He always gets the glory for anything good that happens. And it's 100% us. We're doing everything we can to bring our will in conformance with what the Scriptures tell us to do. God will decide how long in this life we have to do that. So many things, this, this spiritual maturity idea, um, what do we even mean by it? It means so many things to so many people. I was at the children's, um, they, they did a thing at Sheridan College yesterday, like a, like a kid's fair. And I got a card from somebody, it was a new school that they were wanting to start. And I was reading the values of the school and how they want children to grow. And one of them said spiritually. And so I went to this, this, this man and I was curious. I said, I see you wrote you want children to grow spiritually. I said, is this a parochial school? And it wasn't. He had a very different idea of what spiritual growth was than I did. Any faith, he said, is encouraged to help children grow spiritually. First of all, there is no spiritual growth without the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I know of no spirituality apart from the Holy Spirit. But what do we mean when we're talking about being spiritually mature? Um, is this about how much you're doing for the poor? Is this about how much scripture you have memorized? Is a spiritually mature person the one who's got the most notes in the margin of their Bibles? Uh, different churches gauge it in different ways. But I want to suggest to you four characteristics of a spiritually mature person. Uh, before we talk about how to become spiritually mature, these are actually from a book called uh, Renovation by Dallas Willard. Three of them are. One of them was from another source. But I think these are all good things to consider when you're talking about spiritual maturity. Um, first of all, uh, these four characteristics, mature Christians don't defend themselves when wrong. Mature Christians don't defend themselves when wrong. This is straight from the Proverbs. Proverbs 9.8, do, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. If you're wise when someone comes to you and confronts you on something you're wrong about, you'll love it. I wish I could say that I've always responded that way. I definitely have not. Uh, I'm embarrassed about how many times, frankly, I've made a fool out of myself, trying to defend myself, only to later find out that I was 100% wrong. And then what do you got to do? It makes that march to that person all that much harder. You know what? You were right. I was wrong. I'm an idiot. Whatever. Wise people will be so glad to hear that, that they've been corrected by somebody. And they don't get all defensive about their reputation. You know, Christ in Philippians 2 says he made himself of no reputation. It was something he was unconcerned about. If we're wrong, we're wrong. No need to defend ourselves. And then secondly, um, mature Christians don't feel they're missing out on sin. 
They don't feel they're missing out on sin. And this comes from Psalm 37, 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the, ab than the abundance of many wicked. Um, what is sin to you? Is it a way to get an endorphin rush? Uh, do you feel like you're missing out on something by not getting to do it? Uh, this doesn't mean anybody's, we're, we're, none of us are perfect. This is a quote from a guy named Bill Hull that I think does a good job of explaining this. It, it, for the mature Christian, it does not pain them that evildoers or even the distracted semi-Christian population live in riches and enjoy much recreation. Do you live in a state of discontentment and jealousy? And then third, mature Christians love the unchurched. Mature Christians love the unchurched. If you, would, if you would consider the Apostle Paul to be a mature Christian, he died out of love for the unchurched. Christ died because he had a love for the unchurched. Do we have that same attitude? Or do we despise them because we are afraid they're going to change our politics? Do we despise them because they make us uncomfortable? That's not the sign of Christian maturity. Loving the unchurched, loving the person that does not yet know Christ, making it a point to get to them, even if it means harm to self. This love for the unchurched. And then finally, mature Christians find it easier to do God's will than not. They find it easier to do God's will than not. Um, and this comes from Matthew 11, uh, 29, 30. This is Christ talking to, to the people, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So for the mature Christian, they understand that disobedience in any way will only complicate their lives. It'll bring them the heavy heart versus this approach. The mature Christian has a joy and lighthearted way that they are going about life. Even when life can be incredibly difficult at times, they're not waylaid by it. They're not controlled by emotions. And all of these things, by the way, are undergirded by humility and prayer. Those are two essential ingredients for spiritual maturity. All of these things are undergirded by those two. Prayer and humility. So I think these are some good characteristics the scriptures teach about Christian maturity. And I want to look a little more closely about how to get there. So then how do I grow to maturity? Just three questions to ask ourselves. First of all, what's your attitude? What's your attitude? Last week I talked about assessing your childishness. There's a much, there's a much greater difference between the way a, a child approaches life and an adult approaches life. Um, we need to be weaned off of milk to solid food. And we see this theme throughout this passage. Children don't always wean from their mother's milk easily. Um, and then John Ortberg, he talks about it this way. Uh, he says there's a catch to being weaned, of course. Weaning is not a popular process, at least not for the one being weaned. Children rarely volunteer for it because it is both costly and painful. Weaning means learning to live in stillness with unfulfilled desires. It is the mark 
of maturity. When you imagine a spiritually mature person, what kind of attitude do they have? What kind of attitude do they have towards those things in their life that are not going the way they wished? When they're not having their desires fulfilled? Are they whining about it? Are they constantly having to talk about it? Now, I think it's important to be transparent about how they're feeling, but you don't get stuck there. What is your attitude? Is your attitude that of an adult or is it that of a child? And then secondly, what's your access? What's your access? Now, what do I mean by that? What access do you have to that which can help you progress in spiritual maturity? Now, this is kind of a rhetorical question because we have access to more than any generation or people has ever had before us. It's never been easier to get to church than right now. Churches have never been more comfortable than they are right now. We've never had access to the Bible more so than right now. We've never had more literacy than we have right now. We've never had more access to books and things that can help us on this journey than we have right now. So maybe it's not so much a question of access. Maybe it's more this next question. What's your availability? What's your availability? How much time are you available for spiritual formation? Now, I think this is a pretty good diagram of Christian priority. Um, notice you'll see at the top, God. He should be our top priority. Um, he should be the last one we talk to in the evening and the first one we talk to in the morning. Prayer is essential, essential for maturity. And then next, it should be our spouse. I mean, the scriptures have a lot to say about how we are loving and treating our spouse. And then our children. The first people that we need to be discipling are our children. The house is still the true seminary where people learn. And then you have a job to do. God has given you work. And it's important that we go and we work to the glory of God, whatever that may be. And then finally, ministry. Now, some people struggle with occupation and ministry, and some of us are blessed, admittedly, to be able to do both at the same time. But ministry should not be superseding these other things. And what do I mean by that? Uh, my job as a pastor should not prohibit me from being a good parent. And I've really respected uh, men and ladies who have said, you know what, I've gotten so involved in these things at the church to the neglect of my family. I need to stop, and I need to pay more attention to them. I've watched, I've watched men do that, and I've got great, great respect for people when they get to that point and they realize what they're doing. But there is a, a pyramid of priority here that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, so what's your availability for maturity? Have things gotten out of line here? Are you too busy recreating that, that you can't spend time in prayer with your family? How, whatever the difficulty may be, can you get these priorities straight? So if I want to sum this all up, grow up spiritually by taking responsibility to grow deep. Grow up spiritually by taking responsibility to grow deep. Take responsibility for yourself, perhaps for your family, to make sure they're getting the nutrients and the solid food that they need. I want to close um, 
with a portion of uh, Mark Twain's book on the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. So if, if you're familiar with that story, this is Jim and Huckleberry Finn, and they've, they've been traveling, and they're about to camp out, and they have this conversation, and they're, they're bringing out uh, things that they had packed. And one thing that Jim pulls out of his bag is a book. And then that starts this conversation. Huckleberry Finn said, what did you bring a book for with this tone of irritation? To read, said Jim, rolling out the blanket. What else is a good book for? I didn't think you could read, Huck said. Then he wished he hadn't said that. Jim said, I can read with an intense serious, and he's serious as he's gazing into the night. And Huck said, well, what kind of book is it? And Jim said, it's a book about theology. Theology. I hate theology. Almost as much as I hate school and rules. Then he spit in the river. And Huck said, what good is a theology book on a trip like this? Jim was silent a long time before he answered. He said, a trip like this is long. A lot of things are going to happen. Might come in handy. We make decisions every single day based on what we believe. And if we are deep in the faith, if we're nurtured on biblical truth, we are much better prepared to make the right decisions in life. Decisions that are in line with perseverance. Decisions in line with what these Hebrews were going to be faced with. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father,